We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh from New Bloom. Thanks for having me. Bill Sharp. Thank you. And on the telephone by Jieting Ye from Cataglan Media. Thanks to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the mess that is the DPP primary process for 2020, calls once again for Taiwan's inclusion in the World Health Assembly, and defence issues ahead of the annual Hanguang exercise. But we'll begin today's show with the legalisation of same-sex marriage. As we're recording the show today, a couple of hundred same-sex couples are legally registering their marriages at household registration offices across the island. As today, May the 24th, signals the first day of legalised same-sex marriage here in Taiwan. Lawmakers had just begun debating the three competing same-sex marriage bills when we were recording last week's show. But after several hours of those debates, during which time lawmakers were given three minutes on the podium to express their opinions, they finally voted to pass a cabinet-sponsored bill that made Taiwan the first country in Asia to legalise same-sex marriage. The new law allows two persons of the same gender, aged 18 or older, to register a marriage with at least two witnesses signing the registration document. Either partner in the marriage will be allowed to adopt the biological children of the other under the law. However, non-biological children who had been adopted by one partner before the marriage cannot be adopted by the other partner. And also allows Taiwan nationals to marry partners from any one of the 26 other countries globally where same-sex marriage is legal. And I spoke with Deutsche Welle's Taiwan correspondent William Young about what today means for the island's LGBTQ community. Good evening, William. Good evening, Gavin. So what does today mean to you? I think today, actually, since I have been covering this issue for the last two and a half years, at least, uh, today actually means a relief uh, because... You know, we are finally seeing uh, something coming out of uh, this long battle for the legalization of same-sex marriage in Taiwan, uh, especially uh, when you consider how much twists that uh, the movement has witnessed and experienced uh, in the last 18 months. So I think it's just a, a temporary uh, moment to celebrate, really, because uh, it, it just really gives uh, people the proof that Taiwan is still able to prioritize human rights, uh, even when politics uh, is so heavily involved in uh, this issue. And of course, today, some 250 or over 250 same-sex couples are registered to marry island-wide, according to the Ministry of the Interior. I mean, do you think that number will phase off or drop down and then less attention will be paid to this in the coming months until it just becomes a norm? Um, I actually felt like uh, the momentum could be pretty strong in the first few months uh, as uh, more people are either preparing to get married or uh, they have the desire to really, uh, you know, uh, clear all the hurdles that could be in the way uh, for them uh, to get registered legally uh, with the government. But uh, as you say again, uh, there are some uncertain areas uh, where some same-sex couples might be prevented from, uh, you know, completing the final step of uh, affirming their relationship uh, in in a legal way because uh, maybe their partner is not from one of the 26 countries or uh, they do have the plan to adopt, uh, but somehow they don't have uh, the legal rights to do so because uh, the children is not, you know, a a biological child of 
either one of the partner. So I think uh, these uh, conditions will continue to be at the center of the ongoing debate about uh, this, what I would call a, an imperfect uh, version of same-sex marriage. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I do think uh, the legalization from last Friday is really uh, injecting a huge boost in terms of the uh, morale in the LGBTQ community in Taiwan. And do you think today's events will sort of do something to get rid of the stigma of gay marriage in Taiwan, or do you think some elements of society will still look down on it? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the stigma will go away very easily, uh, as we have already been reading and hearing about uh, in the news and even just uh, around us. The anti-marriage equality groups ha- uh, were very unsatisfied with last Friday's results, and they have vowed uh, to continue fighting uh, through all the means that they have, which might include uh, not only just, um, you know, the using ne- next year's election as a tool, but also uh, they are probably going to seek uh, the Supreme Court's interpretation again on the topic of marriage, the definition of marriage. So uh, I think, unfortunately, the stigma will continue to remain until... Uh, there could be a very comprehensive uh, amendment to the uh, existing clause that was just really signed into law uh, uh, on Wednesday of uh, this week. I mean, do you think a future government could repeal the law? Uh, this possibility has been raised by uh, the leading KMT legislator, uh, Mr. Lai Shibao, during the uh, debates leading up to the vote uh, last Friday. And he has made it really clear to the voters and electorates that if uh, KMT were to be elected back into office in 2020, uh, their goal is to reverse and repel everything that was being passed this year. Uh, As for how possible and likely that is uh, on the political and uh, legislative uh, scale, I think it's really hard to say. You know, we really have to... uh, first look at, uh, are there any precedents uh, like this? And we have to remember that uh, this is not just uh, repelling one single uh, very simple amendment to existing laws. It's repelling a complete set of 27 provisions, uh, and that that could be a very costly and huge uh, effort, which, I, in my opinion, is very unnecessary for Taiwan at this moment. And possibly a huge waste of taxpayers' money. Yes, exactly. Uh, Taxpayer money being wasted uh, on this issue has also been one of the uh, areas of discussion uh, during the last few years uh, because uh, the same-sex marriage groups have, you know, they they believe that it's very unnecessary for uh, the legislators to spend so much time discussing about the issue that the Supreme Court has clearly mandated that it's unconstitutional to them marriage equality. But, uh, so if this does happen, you know, next year that uh, the KMT is launching a campaign to really repel the same-sex uh, rights for same-sex couples to get married, then this will just be another example that Taiwan's politics is so entangled uh, in terms of, uh, you know, how, how it swings with public opinion. Because, of course, that was one of the anti-gay marriage edicts basically the in the referendums in november of last year they keep citing the public voting down gay marriage yes because uh they do know and understand that with the supreme court's ruling in place and they 
there's no other way for them to really uh, make their points and arguments. So they're sticking to the idea and the uh, that the public, 7.6 million uh, eligible voters, have uh, voiced their opinion on the topic of marriage and uh, because the executive run uh, insisting on uh, allowing the same-sex couples to use uh, rules that are pretty much drafted based on the civil code, even though it's separated from the civil code. And so they're very unsatisfied with that fact, and uh, they are saying that uh, the... I mean, I, I talked to the leader of the anti-marriage equality group last week, and this is how he phrased it. He called it an abuse of public opinion, and also, you know, like uh, the government is totally ignoring public opinion in this matter. Do you think, obviously, when same-sex couples start to go to household registration offices island-wide from today, there might be certain people in these registration offices that might not like what they're doing and could refuse to actually marry a couple? There have been uh, news and cases, you know, where uh, same-sex Couples reported to the media that the local household registration uh, staff seemed pretty reluctant to uh, register them and asked them to uh, be registered at uh, offices where they have already uh, been preparing this matter for a while. But once the news report is out, uh, the local county government uh, came out and refuted the such claim and insist that they're already, you know, prepared and they're welcoming everyone to go to the local household registration office. So I don't uh, see a, a very strong possibility that uh, there could be, a, I, I guess, uh, cases where same-sex couples are being rejected. Right. And finally, how many gay couples do you think will get married this year, if you had to put a round number on it? I would probably put a number around maybe... Uh, I don't know, 500 to 1,000, but that might be very optimistic. I would just say it's clearly going to be uh, definitely maybe around 400 to 500. I could be pretty uh, like uh, sure about that. That was me in conversation with Deutsche Welle's Taiwan correspondent, William Young. Moving on now, and the DPP's 2020 presidential primary mess continued this week, the same week the President Tsai Ing-wen was trying hard to put on a brave face when she was celebrating the third anniversary of her 2016 election victory. Now, the week got off to a bad start, with former Premier and 2020 hopeful William Lai accusing President Tsai Ing-wen's re-election campaign team of spreading lies, claiming that he previously told Tsai that he would not run for the presidency. Lai, though staunchly denied ever telling Tsai that during a meeting on March the 8th and he called for a clean primary campaign insisting that the right course of action is to follow the party's established procedures. Now those comments came ahead of a meeting of the DPP's Central Executive Committee on Wednesday where party bigwigs debated the well primary process. However after a two hour meeting no progress was made and the DPP remains at loggerheads over the format for its presidential primary. Party officials failed to reach any agreement on how the public opinion poll should be conducted, what methods should be used, and even when the primary should actually take place. Now, party chairman Rong Tai best summed it all up, telling reporters that the DPP is in the same place it was 
in on March the 13th, when it first set out to finalise its primary process. William Lye, however, did make a decision this week, or rather two decisions, those being to give way to Tsai if his popularity rating is found to be lower than that of Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guo-yu, and also if Tsai's popularity rating is higher than Han's. So there you go, Brian. What a mess. That's right, and it's dragged on longer and longer. It seems that the longer this drags on, the worse factionalism within the DPP is going to uh, set in. Even if one or the other eventually just becomes the presidential candidate, uh, this will create lasting grudges, and there will be people that are unhappy with the results. And even just how the polling is supposed to take place um, with regards to, for example, whether to include cell phone polling, that's been one of the key issues, uh, particularly because younger voters maybe don't have landlines, and William Lai perhaps views himself as more popular among older demographics. Um, and so just even the basic format of that has not been settled. And the dates at which the, 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 the primary was originally supposed to be hold, held have already passed. Um, it's just going to drag on, and it, the longer it drags on, it looks worse for the DPP. Jetting. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, they talk about you know running the kind of campaigns that they, they wish they were running, but it doesn't seem to me, as of now, anybody's running any sort of campaign, right? We're not they're not debating policy. They're not debating, you know, like different visions of the country, or they're not even debating on how they go about uh, fulfilling sort of the, the the things that they said, you know, they wanted to do, what the party wants to do. Um, right now, it's almost a, you know, it's purely based on popularity contest plus, you know, who comes out of this procedural fight, you know, looking less, you know, better than the other person. But, I mean, Brian, do you think they're both going to look pretty stupid, whatever happens? It seems like it. And I think um, it is just showing the kind of cleavages within the DPP at present between, uh, for example, the pan-green traditionalists that back William Lai and maybe younger voters, um, younger members of the DPP that perhaps back time more. Um, Tsai is accused of of, of uh, changing election procedures to benefit her by William Lai supporters, and William Lai is, seems unwilling to compromise with regards to any format so far. And so just both of them kind of look bad, and this doesn't reflect good on the DPP, which wants to stake itself as having a more robust internal democracy than the KMT, which traditionally sometimes does have these issues. Um, in the past few years, it has actually seen similar issues regarding how to decide as candidate. Well, that's an interesting point. You know, I often wonder, uh, okay, if uh, William Lai gets the nomination and he should be elected, what exactly would his policies be? I mean, if he th sees uh, Tsai Ing-wen's policies as a failure, well, I mean, he shares in some responsibility for that, given the fact that he was premier at the end. Uh, and he was uh, brought on uh, not only because Lin Chuen resigned, or won it out uh, because it was thought that he had greater political skills and he could finesse some of these issues, the thorny issues like labor standards reform that Lin Chuan just didn't seem to be able to do. So he's not in clean of responsibility for, if you want to call it, the failure of Tsai uh, uh, Ing-wen's policies. Um, it's interesting that you meant that he's been rather stubborn about this, too, because I share in that view myself. I think he has been pretty stubborn. But, I mean, Jerting, what do you take of William Lai saying that he's willing to roll over and let Tsai take the lead if his popularity rating is found to be lower than Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guo-yu or if Tsai's popularity rating is higher than Han's? And, of course, bear in mind, we're talking about a man who we don't really know is going to run for the presidency. Yeah, that's a... Uh... I mean, I, I, I don't know, right? Because right now, it just seems that all the attention, again, is on these procedural, you know, questions. It, I mean, it, are we really going to decide who the DPP president, you know, nomination is going to be based on 
you know, whether they're more popular than the opponent. I mean, I, I don't know. That, that doesn't seem very good for morale. I mean, if I were a DPP, you know, member, I would say, look, you know, this is, we're already, we're already so concerned with who we're going to be facing up again. And that person, as you said, isn't even going, isn't even actually registered or, you know, like formally nominated to run for president. Right. So it, it, it shows this very strange, fear of the KMT's onslaught from, you know, the results uh, back in November last year, yet um, the party doesn't seem to be able to come together and say, okay, look, you know, this is going to be a hard fight no matter what. Let's, you know, figure this out and then move on. Um, I, you know, it it seems that both sides, well, it it seems to me at least that the um, William Lai side, right, because, uh, President Tai is presumed to be the nominee until Lai registered to run. Um, I mean, it seems to me that their side is, you know, I, I don't, I don't quite understand. You know, they think Tai doesn't have a chance. You know, that this is, you know, what's going to get them the victory in 2020. I, I have a question to ask everybody here. I, I'm really curious to see what you guys say, th- think about this. Is uh, okay. Let's say hypothetically, William Lai doesn't get the nomination, and of course, he still has his strong uh, uh, band of supporters. Older, as you mentioned, would he bolt the party and try to run himself? Uh, try to create his own party? And on the same token, let's say that Hong Guoyu doesn't get the nomination for the Kuomintang. Would he bolt the party? Um, that is actually a question, yeah, I'm actually also very curious about, because I think it does actually point to the fact that both sides both sides of the political spectrum in Taiwan are having these internal crises between uh, traditionalists and, you know, moderates, for example. And there's a possibility that traditionalists will bolt the party. Um, with regards to Lai, it is quite interesting, because again, as, as was Bill mentioned, and as Sieting mentioned, he was part of the Thai administration. Uh, he did actually back away from stances he was known for previously, such as staunch independence advocacy and so forth, um, when he was premier. But as soon as he, as soon as the results of elections became clear last year, he made moves to distance himself from Thai, and it was long rumor, rumor that he would try to pursue the 2020 presidential nomination. Um, and he does actually, even now, he does continue to go back on these stances, which have seemed to want him the support of these party traditionalists in the past. Um, they just, he just seems to have confidence that they will support him at this point in time. Um, and so that's a question. It just, it just points to splits within the party, and it, it says a lot about the state, I think, of party politics in Taiwan. Mm. That's a very interesting point about party politics in Taiwan. Are, are the study of political parties in Taiwan really important to understanding Taiwan politics? The reason why I say that is because, like, well, I know Zhongtian TV says, like, I think it is 94% of people in Taiwan don't have party affiliation. I dispute that because the research I've done in the last few years says it's somewhere between 46 and 49. I think that's much more credible since I see that pop up in a number of sources and references. Uh, but it is true that I mean people swing back and forth, you know, and they're and, and I think there's a growing, um, how should I say, lack of loyalty. I mean, it's like, uh, oh, oh, who can deliver the economic goods? And if you don't deliver them, then we're going to the other party. And there's a, like swinging back and forth. And the swing vote in Taiwan it seems to be becoming more and more important all the time. So yeah, I, although I, 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 I'm really wonder if studying political parties in Taiwan is really all that crucial. Yeah, jetting. Yeah, no, but you know, if we look at just the past um, presidential elections since 1996, right? So the only um, somewhat successful third uh, independent run or a third party run would be Song Chuyin in 2000, right? And that was because 
um, you know, at the time, you can sort of say, well, in 2000, people are still getting used to the idea that you can vote for different parties. You didn't have to vote KMT, um, you know, and, and all these things, right? But even then, you know, the, the sort of longest narrative on the blue can side is, well, if the if Song Tree hadn't come out and run on his own, then the KMT surely would have won presidential election in 2000. And the narrative is that, well, the DPP kind of stole the election, sort of, almost, right? And that led to 2004, where Lian Zhan and Song Tzu basically came back together and said, okay, let's put down differences and run together on the same ticket, right? And so I think in Taiwan, people are getting to this, you know, idea that, um, you know, given the the presidential, you know, one simple majority wins, one round of voting, no you know, no multiple rounds, no ranked choice, right? It's just a straight up, whoever gets the most number of uh, votes wins. And, you know, I think it all comes down, people basically at the end will um, going to go back into their sort of two opposing camps, right? Because if, you know, if you are number second, you will want to work with, um, the you know, third, number third, number four, to basically build a coalition and say, well, let's take down number one. Right. And so, you know, I, I think the just the, the same the question of whether people will run as independents or from their own parties, I think just in terms of presidential elections, that's uh, I don't think that's very likely, given the current um, sort of political history and also the um, the voting system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I, I think, as you said, the media, uh, the the people sort of in the middle, um, or shall we say people who um, are not as strongly affiliated with one party or another, um, I think with each new um, generation of voters, um, you know, it, I, I think it kind of depends, right? Because it, you have to basically see, you know, I, I think I think these days people feel, well, political parties are just sort of organizations, right? I mean, we have older people who grew up in Taiwan back in the days was like, well, political party is like religion, right? But now I think um, maybe there are people who say, you know, like I vote one party this time, vote the other party that time, you know, it's all kind of the same to me. Um, I mean, I think people, there are quite um, an amount of people like that in Taiwan as well. Mm. Right now we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And it's that time of year once again when the World Health Assembly or news about said World Health Assembly is splashed all over the media here in Taiwan as health officials from Taiwan are in Geneva talking with delegates from other countries. And of course, those other countries have actually been invited to attend the annual meeting of the global health body. Now, a proposal to discuss Taiwan's participation in the WHA as an observer failed to be placed on the agenda of this year's session on Monday of this week despite vocal support for such a move by 14 of the island's diplomatic allies. Now, the United States is once again back in calls for Taiwan to be granted observer status, with the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, saying that Washington supports Taiwan having the type of status it had previously had at the WHA. Now, representatives from other countries, including Germany, the UK, Japan and others, 
have also voiced their support for Taiwan's inclusion in the Global Health Body's annual meeting, while Health Minister Chen Shih-jong, who's in Geneva, although not at the meeting itself, has held 71 meetings with delegates from other countries on the sidelines of the event. And the Health Ministry says that the number of meetings with foreign health officials this year surpassed that of last year. So, Brian, I believe one of our regular guests called Ross Feingold calls this the annual pity party. Um, that's one way to look at it. And the story seems to be about the same every year. Uh, Taiwan remains excluded from the WHA. Uh, it does usually some kind of publicity campaign to try to raise awareness of this fact, um, either through the government. Uh, these recent years through releasing online videos, for example, or online campaigns. Uh, civic groups, Taiwanese civic groups, sometimes also will engage in campaigns, particularly Taiwanese uh, people in Europe, uh, oftentimes young people. And then the same thing happens. Um, it's just a question of which countries back Taiwan's status, uh, whether there's you know, more than last year. Um, however, primarily also, this is not a major shift either. It, it, the countries that do back Taiwan participating in the WA, it is still as a observer. And so even with the, the, the shifts we have seen in the last year, for example, with stronger American uh, political support of Taiwan, it, it, the situation with regard to the WHA remains the same. I think the, um, the interesting thing is that during the Maoist administration, there were a, a handful of years when Taiwan was um, present at the meeting, right? And that was sort of touted as a big diplomatic breakthrough. Um, on the other hand, that happened only because China basically said, okay, we were okay with it, right? And I think, you know, just to be very simplistic about this, basically China says no and everybody else, you know, says, well, okay, I think it obviously makes sense for Taiwan to be part of the meeting, um, but China says no. And so, you know, other than kind of giving some moral support, there's not nothing much we're going to do about it, right? Um, you know, like, and what, what, but what else there is to, to do other than, you know, to fundamentally change the rules of the WHO, WHA, or even the United Nations, right? And that's, you know, pretty much a pie in the sky at this point. Um, but I, I think it is, on the other hand, I think it is quite, um, it, it's almost, it's almost a, a silver lining, right, where this is something that shows, um, you know, Taiwan's sort of unique and, and you know, sort of this, this diplomatic conundrum that it is in, right? And, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, just, you know, I think this, the, the same kind of stories and the same kind of attitudes are going to be sort of the, that I mean that's sort of, that's the norm right unless we see sort of fundamental um, you know rethinking of the whole entire UN system you know I think this is this is pretty much it yeah I mean Bill I mean obviously the US health secretary coming out and saying it supports Taiwan's participation in the WHA I believe recently in the US government they passed a motion in the Senate or the House supporting Taiwan's participation in international organisations. But, I mean, it, Uncle Sam doesn't seem to be able to actually do anything about it, which actually means anything. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I, I think I agree with that observation, and I'm not quite sure about how the mechanics of the World Health Organization or the World Health Assembly work. I mean, is Taiwan has an actual vote been taken, and the majority of countries say no, you can't participate even as an observer, or is this because China puts out the word and everybody else gets it, and they get all get scared because they don't want to alienate or annoy China. I, I don't understand the mechanics uh, of the World Health uh, Associate Assembly. Maybe, maybe someone here can help me out. 
Um, so it began several years ago that Taiwan was uh, disinvited to the WHO. Usually a letter was sent um, from the organization, um, although I'm not familiar with the internal mechanism by which uh, such decisions were made. Um, at the time, it was thought to be because the uh, head of the organization was a woman from Hong Kong who was uh, more pro-China-leaning, and it was thought because of her influence that um, similar to when you do have Chinese nationals or, or pro-China nationals uh, take control of uh, the heads of international organizations, because obviously China plays a large part of them, um, you do see Taiwan excluded afterwards. And so it seems primarily that on basis of the invite, but any motion for Taiwan to be uh, admitted back in on the basis of observer status or otherwise is usually doesn't get too far. Although Taiwan's diplomatic allies, uh, remaining diplomatic allies, usually do voice uh, support um, in some form. I mean, Jieting, you're obviously in San Francisco. You obviously know lots of Taiwan expats. What do they think about the WHA? It's obviously, you know, takes place every year. Do they have a feeling about it there? Um... No, it's not. Uh, I mean, it, I think, again, it's something that people sort of rally around to say, hey, this is not fair. Um, you know, this this is ridiculous. This doesn't make any sense. Um, but then, you know, I think the, and it, it, you know, people in, in Taiwanese Americans who are politically active, right, they do, um, you know, push very hard on their elected uh, members of Congress to support Taiwan joining um, WHO or WH, uh, to be a president at the WHA or even other uh, international organizations like um, the civil um, the uh, uh, civil aviation organization, right? And so these, um, the, the thing is, that even if the U.S. Congress supports it, the U.S. Congress can't do anything on foreign policy. Um, the foreign policy is conducted to the State Department, right? And then, even then, it's we're talking about international organizations where the U.S. is only what a single member, essentially, right? I mean, obviously, a very important one. But um, so, I mean, the WHO WHA issue has been a um, you know a talking point with members of Congress here uh, for Taiwanese Americans for I would say you know almost twenty years now. Um, but you know, it's just. Where you know the progress is very very slow, is in um, even though the U.S. Congress, you know, they, they will tell you, yes, you know, we understand it makes sense. Um, you know, this is what's happening is ridiculous, but you know, they'll do they do what they can, and it's almost basically a well, we support you guys, um, yay, go, and that's it. You know what strikes me is really, I, I, I don't know how I, I can't find the, the quite quite the word for it, but uh, a contradiction. Maybe that's the best word, at least the the, the one that pops into my mind at the, at the minute. If you look at the health standards in Taiwan, they're so much better than they are in the mainland. If you look at the availability of health services in Taiwan, they're so much better. Taiwan's health system is, is, is held up as an example for the rest of the world, and lots of countries around the world try to follow it. And yet Taiwan is blocked from participating, even as an observer in the World Health Association Assembly. And, and another kind of striking fact is, I, and I read this statistic just the other day, and I, I can't remember it exactly, but it's astounding the number of mainland people that come to Taiwan for medical treatment each year. It's sort of like the old division between East Berlin and West Berlin, and a lot of people, especially those with any kind of influence or power in East Berlin, used to find a way to West Berlin for medical treatment because they knew that the medical treatment there was a lot better. I believe it was 100,000. Last year, I think they was it about hundred thousand, I believe, Brian. Last mm. year, yeah, that sounds right. I think that sounds about right, but I I didn't want to, to say that without being sure. 
Which is kind of ironic, Brian, really, considering mm. China doesn't want Taiwan to be part of the WHO, yet <laughs> Chinese nationals are quite happy to fly over here and get health care. Uh, that's right, and it's one of the ironies of uh, Taiwan's relation to China. Just some things are considered safer. The healthcare system is considered safer. I mean, you do have ripe corruption in, in China. I mean, you have disasters within the past several decades, such as entire villages getting AIDS because of reused needles um, and with regards to uh, donating blood and, and selling blood and, and uh, issues like that. And so it does make sense for a lot of Chinese nationals, depending if, if they have the resources to get to Taiwan. Um, and, and it is ironic then that then Taiwan is blocked from, uh, from participation in international organizations. This also proves uh, a way in which dangerous diseases can also spread back to China if Taiwan is led out, left out of these organizations. Yes. Yeah, but then from, from the view of Beijing, right, Taiwan is part of these international organizations and systems through the representation of Beijing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's, they, they made that very clear during the SARS epidemic, um, you know, 15, somewhat years ago, right? They said, well, you know, don't worry, Taiwan is covered because Taiwan is part of China and China is in these organizations. So therefore, um, we got you, you know, we, we got Taiwan. Well, well yeah, you know, but just how well does ta- does China represent the interests of Taiwan and the WHA? I, I think that's sort of a, a zero cell there. <laughs> Right, but I mean, that's what they say, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, I, I know what you're saying. Anyway, we'll move on from health issues to military issues. And the Ministry of National Defence this Wednesday held what it's calling its largest maritime live-fire training exercise in five years in waters off the Suao Naval Base in Ilan. Now the drill comes amid increases in Chinese military activity around Taiwan, amid an uptick in the number of US naval vessels and also Coast Guard vessels transiting through the Taiwan Strait, and also ahead of next week's nationwide Hanguang Live fire exercises and those annual joint forces drills will see the army navy and air force testing their responses to simulated air and sea assaults by chinese forces and bill of course you're in taiwan this week because you've been invited to go see the jets landing on the runways or on the freeways rather on the freeway right well i'm looking forward to it Uh, i of course heard about the hongwang for a number of years but never had an opportunity to observe it so i i think it um it'll be an interesting opportunity uh, I'm, I'm quite interested in Taiwan defense affairs. Uh, it, it does seem to me that since President Tsai has been in office, she's really given the, a lot of emphasis to defense affairs and really tried to build up the uh, morale and the, uh, how should I call it, the respectability of a military career. Um, promises, perhaps under U.S. pressure, to increase the defense budget. Uh, and and has really kind of launched into a very, um, it seems to me, very ambitious um, defense industry buildup, uh, which has spinoff effects for the civilian economy. So uh, it seems to me that she should be given a lot of credit for that. I noticed that unlike President Ma, who seems to me, you know, thought because he had his picture taken with the Marines doing push-ups that he was a pro-military person, um, I think it was quite the contrary, and I think the morale really dipped when he was president. I've talked to several retired military officers, all at the rank of colonel and above, who retired somewhat early because they didn't think that Ma was giving the military sufficient attention. Um, yeah, on the other hand, I would say this. I, I think that the um, Taiwan population is not as appreciative as the military as they probably should be. I mean, there is a threat. Uh, It's called China. And the threat becomes more and more pronounced every day. Uh, And and it just doesn't seem that the um, 
the population is willing to acknowledge that threat very much or um, is kind of like, um, how should I say, a little bit stingy on giving their support to added uh, defense expenditures, etc. And sometimes it almost has the ring of, well, if anything happens, we'll just call upon the U.S. and the U.S. will come in here on its galloping white stallion and save us. I, I don't appreciate that point of view, although I'm, I'm a very strong supporter of the TIRA. But uh, I think that, um, you know, uh, Taiwan probably has to do more, too. Of course, Brian, we had, like I said earlier, we had more U.S. naval ships transiting through the Taiwan Strait this week. And, of course, this has happened five times in mm. recent months. And, of course, it still makes headline news. Um, that's right. And also, uh, it's, it was usually a two-month period, if I recall, between the uh, ships passing through the Taiwan Strait. And it seems to have picked up recently just with the escalation of the U.S.-China trade war. And so all these things are, are tied together. I mean, mm. despite these drills being taking place and being scheduled much farther in advance, they will be read in context of this U.S.-China trade war. Um, and with regards to uh, the U.S. stepping up military shows of support. Um, and so actually, yeah, it's also, I think, a question how China will react after this, despite the fact that this is just a regularly scheduled event. The fact that it just happens typically now um, could lead to some reactions. No, I, I think just the fact that it is the largest, um, as you said, the largest in five years, you know, and, and with all this sort of increased activity, um, there, I think there is a sort of a clear trend you know, towards um, sort of Taiwan, you know, being making it much clearer that it is on going to be on the side of the U.S. rather than China, right? Because I think the um, the, the issue with the military, you know, if you read in the context of Taiwan trying to hedge or trying to you know sort of carve out a little bit of space between U.S. and China, right? And when U.S. and China were um, friendly, or when there isn't you know much. Uh, friction, right? Taiwan can sort of say, well, you know, we're going to benefit both sides. We're going to make friends with both sides, right? And so during that time, you downplay the, you know, sort of downplay the importance of the military. And I think the people, as you know, Bill mentioned, like people kind of see that, right? Like, oh, well, you know, like we're, we're, we're a peace, I, in Taiwan, right? People say we're a peace loving country when that, what that means is they, you know, think very little, very, they think little of the military, right? And so that that's sort of a, you know, sort of a strange notion for people who um, have spent time in the U.S. who said things, well, you know, peace comes from having security and having, you know, enough of a deterrent, right? And so, you know, I, I think right now as the as U.S. and China becomes much more um, acrimonious against each other, um, you know, anything militarily that Taiwan does is going to be seen in that light. Mm. Although, although it actually seems likely that the KMT will again try to attack this as unnecessary expenditures, um, which is quite interesting. Um, that seems to be a tactic the KMT has picked up recently. Uh, with regards to the strength in military relation, I guess, between the U.S. and China that we've seen um, in the past year, um, over the Ma administration, of course, without being more pro-China, there was even talk of uh, military cooperation or, or drills with China that, that during the administration. Um, yeah. You know, you know, what to me seems to be a glaring contradiction is <clears throat> I remember a couple of years ago watching Phoenix TV and they had this weekly talk show and they had this one Chinese military expert on uh, and he was saying, well, I don't, I don't understand why Taiwan is wasting Chinese people's money on military um, expenditures. <laughs> well, what about you guys? <laughs> Defense budget increases every 10, 10 or 12 percent over a number of years of uh, what about that? <laughs> it was Phoenix TV, though. 
It was I, Phoenix. I'm sure the people that watch Phoenix TV applauded what that man said. I, I, absolutely. I, yeah. It's important to underline that it was Phoenix TV. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Bill Sharp. Goodbye now. Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone by Jie Ting Ye. Have a good weekend. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.